Um, there are certain passages in Scripture that when a preacher looks at them, uh, comes across them, and considers preaching them, those passages cause the preacher to tremble. Uh, sometimes it's because the passage is just plain difficult to understand. You're reading it and you're not exactly sure what on earth it means. And, and even some of the apostles had that problem. You may remember that the apostle Peter said that some of the things that the apostle Paul writes are difficult to understand. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if Peter can't figure it out, what makes me think I can? Sometimes it's because the passage is tough to hear. It teaches a difficult truth about human nature, about judgment, about God's anger at sin. And so it's, it causes a, a preacher to tremble because they cannot really, they, they're afraid to bring out the truth that the scripture passage holds. And then sometimes it's simply because the passage seems impossible to believe. What it says is too grand, too glorious. The promises are too out there for the preacher to believe. It almost seems like it's too good to be true, like it's, like it's over the top. And, and you think to yourself as a preacher, I can't do justice to what this passage is trying to communicate to God's people. And this is one of those passages. The words on these pages are lofty. They are outrageous. They seem excessive. They, they almost beggar the imagination. They stretch our incredulity. I'm, I'm having a hard time already trying to put into words just the, the magnitude of this text. And in all honesty, if you're not a Christian here and you heard me read these words uh, and, and you thought to yourself, yeah, right. That sounds like it's pretty hard to believe. I mean, stuff like that you may be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The stuff like he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And you think to yourself, eh, that's, that's a little too good to be true. You know what my response to that is? Is I hope you hope it's true. I can promise you that Christians listening to these words have a hard time swallowing that as well, but they hope it's true. And if you're not a Christian here and, and it sounds too good to be true, let me tell you that's one of the wonders of the Christian faith is that the promises of God given to us in the Bible are actually too good to be true. They're so good that you couldn't sell it as a story to Hollywood because they'd say nobody would believe that. And it leads me to believe and it leads me to submit to you to for your consideration that the gospel story and the promises of the Bible, maybe they are true because no human being would ever be able to think this stuff up. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I do that sometimes. What we're going to do is we're going to focus on just two verses of this passage, verses 20 and 21, but everything from verse 14 following is absolutely breathtaking. Paul is asking that God will give us stuff that is absolutely beyond our comprehension. How is it possible to know how high and how 
deep and how wide and how long is the love of Christ. And just so you understand that Paul is not just talking about us getting sort of this intellectual, cognitive understanding of this concept called the love of God. He's talking about what theologians call experimental knowledge. And of course, that's the theologian's job, to say stuff in ways that most of us don't understand. But what they mean by that is, is experimental knowledge is this this experiential knowledge that we can have of something. So you can know that, that someone has told you that honey is sweet. And you understand the concept of sweetness. And you can walk into the grocery store and you can look at the honey on the shelf and you can say, oh yeah, that's a sweetener. That would be good in my tea. Or maybe I put that on a piece of bread or something like that because it's sweet. But that is a different way of knowing, a different way of understanding than if you actually took a, a spoonful of honey and tasted it on your tongue. That's experiential knowledge. That's experimental knowledge. And what Paul is praying is that you and I would be able to experience, not just know with our heads, but experience in our hearts the pure, unfiltered, undiluted, highest octane, potent love of God. Now think... God is infinite. God is eternal. God has no beginning. He has no end. He is gloriously transcendent. He is majestic. There is no question to what he can do and what he is capable of because he has no boundaries. He has no limits. And Paul has the audacity to pray that you and I might have an experience of the love of a being like that. What must that be like? Now, Some of you, you might know a little bit of what the Apostle Paul is praying for here. Some of you may have had, even if it was relatively fleeting, you may have had an experience of God's love that, as Paul describes it here, to know that love that surpasses knowledge, meaning it's it's basically inexplicable. Because there's no comparison to it. There's nothing like it in the world. That's how we gain knowledge. We are, not to get too philosophical, but teach you a little bit of logic uh, in Western philosophy. You know, we, we learn things by, by separating. It is this, not that. It is A, not B. This is how we organize the world. And when you come across something that doesn't fit any categories, has no comparisons, that you can't say it's this, not that, it's very, very hard to to understand it. But some of you have had that experience. I've had this experience on a couple of of occasions in my life. I am a minister. I've been a, a preacher of the gospel for nearly 20 years. I read the Bible regularly. I pray often. I get to share this story with people. And I can tell you that I've only had this a couple times and I have a hard time describing it so I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon describe it to you Charles Spurgeon sometimes known as the prince of preachers he says some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live the love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask for a stay of the delight because we could not endure anymore. 
if the glory had not been veiled a little, we should have died of excess of rapture or happiness. Spurgeon is saying, some of us know what it's like to have an experience of the love of God that is so strong, so powerful, that if God doesn't hold back a little bit, you think like it will kill you. And that's what Paul is praying that you and I would be able to experience someday. But my point, actually, is not to get you to have that experience right in this moment, although that would be wonderful. My point is to ask the question, how on earth is that possible? As I said, God is an infinite being. He is uncontainable. How can the uncontainable pour that kind of love into little old you and little old me? And maybe some of you, you are, you are kind of cynical, even as I hold out these promises to you and these prayers that Paul is praying to you, because you have been a Christian all your life, maybe, or as long as you can remember. You have walked with the Lord, you have seen Him do marvelous things in your life and in your history, and you feel frustrated because you've never had that, what, what Spurgeon and what Paul is describing. And you think to yourself, well, that's why it's too good to be true. It can't be done. But what we learn from our text, which is going to be verses 20 and 21, which we're almost at, I promise, is that what we can't do, God can do. That the resources for these petitions that Paul is praying in verses 14 through 19, those resources are found in God himself. We're going to look at three things together. What God can do, how he does it, how he can do it, and why. What he can do, how he can do it, and why he does it. Those are the three things. So let's look together at these verses. What God can do? Well, the answer, the question is answered in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Paul says that the answer to the question, what can God do is way more than you can ask. That's what he can do. Other translations use, use exceedingly abundantly. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we can ask. So Paul is saying God can do what we ask. He can do what we can think of asking. He can do what we don't even think of asking. And then he can do what more even than what you can imagine that you could ask. In other words, you cannot imagine, Paul says, you can't even with your imagination and with all your education and with all your ability to think uh, you, uh, in interesting ways and, and to, to, to wrestle with grand ideas in all of your brain power, you do not have the ability to get to the limits of God's ability to answer your prayer. You are unable to come up with an ask that is beyond God's capability to answer. Or to put it another one, another way, nobody in this room and nobody in the history of the world has ever been able to out-ask God's ability to answer our prayers. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, oh, I don't know, I find that, I kind of find that hard to believe. Maybe you're a little bit like Han Solo. I know I date myself every time I 
bring up of one of these illustrations, but in the first Star Wars movie, Luke is trying to convince Han Solo to go save Princess Leia from Jabba the Hutt. And he says to Han Solo, he says, don't you, don't you want the reward? I mean, if you save Leia, I promise you the reward is more than you can imagine. And Han Solo, you can just picture Harrison Ford saying this. He's like, I don't know, kid. I can imagine a lot. And maybe that's you. You're thinking, I don't know. God can do more than I can ask or imagine. Boy, you haven't seen this imagination go to work. But what Paul is telling us is that even our boldest, even our bravest, even our best prayers are actually limited. And it's true. We, we place boundaries about, around even the, the prayers that we ask, ask God. So what are some of those limitations? What are the, some of those boundaries? Well, first of all, our sense of need can limit our prayers. We don't know how big our needs actually are. Because you see, what sin does, the Bible says that, that sin deceives. And the first person that sin deceives is us. We are deceived by sin. Sin tricks us into thinking that our problems and our issues aren't as big as they actually are. And, and so our hunger, our spiritual hunger, the thing that drives your prayers, you know what I'm talking about. When you are so desperate and you are so afraid and you are so at the end of your rope that you think, I have nowhere else to go. I guess all I can do now is fall on the mercy of God because I've tried everything else and they've all blown it and they've all come up short and they've not pulled through for me. I guess I got to go to God now and you're finally desperate to go to him. We don't realize that that's how we should be every moment of every day. And so our spiritual hunger, our spiritual appetite, it is, it is dulled, it is weakened by our sin. And so our sense of need can limit our prayers. You know what else can limit our prayers? Our ignorance. Half the time you don't know what you need. Half the time, I don't know what I need. I am ignorant of how my own heart works and the things that, that, that my own heart longs for might be things that I want but don't need. And the other things that I'm not too concerned about are the very things I need but don't really want. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. And so we can be limited by our ignorance of what our needs actually are. And, and frankly, we can be very, very limited by our understanding of who God is. In the deepest, darkest places that you don't talk about at parties, you sometimes think, God is kind of stingy. And he's kind of grumpy. And for me to go back to him again and again and again with my request, sometimes the same thing over and over and over again, is, is not going to play very well with this stingy, sometimes grumpy, sometimes maybe uninterested in me, God. 
And so we limit our ask because we don't understand his character. There's a wonderful story of Alexander the Great, who many of you know as a, as a young man, he conquered much of the known world. And, and uh, the story goes that one of his soldiers came to uh, his treasurer and asked that Alexander the Great pay for his uh, wedding. The treasurer comes up to Alexander the Great and uh, he says, you know, so-and-so has come and asked that you pay for, the, pay for his wedding. And Alex says, well, okay, I'll go ask him what he wants. So he does, and he comes back again, and he says to Alexander the Great, you won't believe what this guy has asked for you to pay for his wedding. It is, it is an incredible sum. And in fact, it's, it's rude, it's insubordinate. And, and not only should you not give it to him, you should probably punish him or throw him out of the army or have him put to death or something like that. Because how dare he have the temerity? How dare he have the nerve to ask this amount? And Alexander hears the, the amount and he smiles, breaks out into a smile and he says, give it to him. And his treasurer is like, what? Why? And Alexander said this, this man has done me a double honor. Not only does he think I am wealthy, he thinks I am generous. Do you not understand, friends, this is precisely God's perspective with respect to you and me? He is wealthy, but he is generous. He's tried to show this to us over and over and over again. And in Romans chapter 8, he says something amazing through the Apostle Paul. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We say that in humility, we think it's humility that we don't want to be presumptuous. And so I'm not going to ask for more than God may want to give. And you and I, we are fools thinking that, that we could ever ask more of God than he would want to give us. He can give immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We are limited by our ignorance, but we can also be limited, frankly, by unbelief. That's probably what's underneath all the other limitations. Paul says God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And you say, perhaps, and I think I might be right because I know I've said this, God can give me immeasurably more than all I ask or imagine? How can I believe that when he doesn't even give me what I want? I've been asking for things. Maybe you've been asking for things and specific things and maybe you've been asking for those things for a really, really long time and those things, they've just never shown up. It hasn't happened. And so you hear this, God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine and you say, what good is that promise if, if he doesn't even come through on the things I do ask for? And so you think in your head, actually underneath it all, you think he does immeasurably less than I ask or imagine. And I get it. I get it, friends. I have been there myself. And I'm there more often than I'd like to admit. But we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, we need to remember God is not a genie in a bottle. 
That's not how our relationship with God works. It's not like we get to rub the, genie, the, rub the bottle and the genie pops out of the lamp or whatever it is and says, what would you like? And you say, well, I'd like pizza for supper. Coming right up. He's not meant to be conjured to, to just grant our wishes. And God doesn't always give us what we want. But you know, if you think about it, he often does. In fact, he often gives you more than what you want. Think about this. You have housing, you have clothing, you have food on your table day after day. You have family that cares about you. You have community that you are a part of. You're part of a church. You have a, a whole uh, extended family that cares about you. You have so much more, perhaps, than you even thought of asking. Or maybe you have asked for those things, but he's given them to you. Every good thing you have, Scripture says, comes from God. You like your glasses? I don't know if you noticed, but I am the proud owner of a cool Colorado pickup truck. Yeah, I'm finally getting some cred with tradespeople. So even if I don't really work for a living, I look like I work for a living. Jess and I have always wanted a truck. Especially her. She grew up driving pickup trucks. This comes from God. Make no mistake, any good thing you have comes from God. The Bible tells you this. James, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. So, the issue is, is never that God is not able to give you more than all you ask or imagine. In fact, God never gives you less than all you could ask or imagine. He always gives you more. Because you see, we're always asking for what we think is best. And as I just said a couple of minutes ago, we don't always know what that is. I'll give you two examples. One is a very silly but still important example because life is usually lived in the very boring and mundane. So you need examples of the very boring and mundane. And then one that's a little more dramatic. Wednesday night, Christianity Explored meets at 6 o'clock. I have agreed to make dinner and provide it for a Christianity Explored. I thought it started at 6.30. Dinner, Jessica told me, was going to be ready shortly after 6. We normally eat between 5.30 and 5.45. And like many men, I get grumpy when I don't get to eat like at the time that I think I am going to eat at. It's silly. It's pathetic. It's a very small inconvenience, but I was kind of cranky about it. And I'm like, come on, I've got this thing I got to do and supper's not ready. And then what am I supposed to bring the food? Blah, blah, blah. Fine. You can't make, you can't have the food ready on time today. Then I'll just go and bring that food to the church early and come back and then we'll eat. And I show up at 5.55 with the food. And I see people there and I'm like, boy, you guys are really keen. And Mark says, well, yeah, we start at six. And I went, oh. Had supper been ready on time, I would have missed my obligation, my responsibility. I know that's small and silly. I thought I knew what I wanted, but I didn't. And God's no was because he had a better yes in store. Now that's a small example, a silly example. Let me give you something a little bigger. In 2017, Grace Valley Church, this little tiny church... We want to find a permanent space that we can worship in and that we can do ministry from. And there was a building behind the Tim Hortons on King Street that used to be a church. Small building, 
was being used uh, by a kitchen, custom kitchen company at the time. And it used to be a church, and we thought, well, if we buy that, you know, we can probably get a, a you know, seat 100, 150 people maybe into the space, and we can maybe have some classrooms downstairs. It'd be perfect. And we pursued it. We went to the city to talk about what it took to change uh, uh, bylaws and, and zoning and stuff. We, we put money toward it. We did all this research. The deal fell through. Well, then the Canadian Tire Building went up for sale. We thought, wow, that would be unbelievable. That'd be amazing. Imagine if we could actually get the Canadian Tire Building. So we had people research it and contact corporate Canadian Tire. And we got to the lawyer and how would it work for us to, to buy this property, etc. Deal falls through. Now I'm getting a little frustrated. Ah, okay, be patient. Well, then there was this mechanic shop just off of downtown where we knew the guy, he was a Christian, and we thought maybe we can buy that property and have it converted. And yeah, it'll be a little bit costly because you've got to do environmental assessments, etc. But a nice little church, we could probably fit 200 people in there, tops, but that's okay. You know, then it will be in town, we'll be able to do ministry. And we pursued it, and we had a meeting about it, and we raised money for it, and it died too. And there's one, two, three, four more properties I could tell you about how we tried to maybe turn them into a future church home for Grace Valley Church. And every single door got shut in our face. And eventually I'm starting to say, okay, God, like, do you want us to do this or what? And I could never have anticipated six years ago when Grace Valley Church was planted Five and a half years ago when we started regular worship services, I never could have imagined in my wildest dreams that in only five and a half short years, the perhaps most iconic church property in Dundas would be the place where we get to do ministry out of. We often don't know what's best for us. And our unbelief limits our prayers. God never does, God never doesn't answer prayer. But he oftentimes says no, but what you and I need to understand is that his no is always, always, always because he has a better yes in store. We get angry because we can't see it. We see only so far as he is willing to give us vision. And we can't imagine what he has in store for us. It is beyond our capabilities. One of my favorite Bible teachers says, puts it this way. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. And you think to yourself, oh, that's a nice intellectual trick. But no, 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 listen. It's not just a trick. Every parent knows that this is how it works because when the four-year-old on their birthday is going to get their favorite meal for dinner and says at four o'clock, I want a cookie. Let me have a cookie. Can I have a cookie? And you say, no, just wait. You'll be glad you don't get the cookie because you're going to have supper and it's going to be your favorite meal. And the four-year-old goes, I don't care. I want my cookie now. That's how they sound, right? Come on. And then they fall on the floor and they start their tantrum. And, and because you're a modern parent, what do you do? You film it and you put it on TikTok. <laughs> but an hour later, they sit down in front of their favorite meal and they get to eat mountains of it because they're hungry. And if you want proof, brothers and sisters, those of you who are Christians, if you want incontrovertible proof 
that God can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, I challenge you to just look in the mirror. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he has already done immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. We're finally getting to point two. I know I'm terrifying you, but point two and three are pretty short. But point two and point one, they kind of overlap. How is God able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine? Well, he does it, Paul says, according to his power that is at work within us. That's verse 20 as well. According to his power that is at work within us. And you say, well, what power is he talking about? Paul tells us in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says this. Listen carefully. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, listen to this, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul is talking about this resurrection power. That's what he's talking about specifically. God is the only one who can take things that are dead and make them alive. I don't know if you know this, but, but life, we've never figured out how life can come from non-life. Scientists have been trying for decades because we have this theory called the Big Bang that basically argues that somehow through some magical whatever, somehow life came from all the stuff of the universe that was inanimate and not alive. But we've never ever been able to figure out how that works. Only God can bring life from non-life. And that is the power that is at work within you. You see, Paul, just in, in chapter 2, just one chapter earlier, he says something incredible. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's talking to Christians and he's saying you were dead. And what he means by that is spiritually dead. And everybody knows that something that is dead cannot respond to external stimuli. If you have a corpse on the ground, I've said this I don't know how many times, and I yell at that corpse, get up, the thing's not going to do anything. The body will just lie there still because it cannot respond. And the Bible says that you and I, outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead. We cannot even respond to this good news of Jesus without God doing something in us. Theologians have another big word for that too. It's called regeneration, bringing back to life. And that's what God does. He's brought, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you have any interest in him at all, that means that God has been working in you before you knew you even needed him to. You ask yourself, well, how come my non-Christian friend shows no interest in Jesus Christ? Well, because... They don't, they don't realize they need him. Why would they? If you don't think there's a God, if you don't think you're a sinner, if you don't think that there's a judgment, if you don't think that there's a, a need for salvation, and you come and tell them, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died, they say, good for you, pal. We're all born that way. How did you become a Christian? You couldn't respond to the gospel, and yet somehow you did. Why? Well, Paul continues in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. 
we don't ask because we don't realize we need it. We have received unlooked-for grace. We weren't looking for it, and God gave it to us anyway. Why are you a Christian, and your neighbor, or your brother, or your child isn't? Is it because you're smarter than them? Is it because you're more moral than them? Is it because you are more hardworking than them? Because you're more thoughtful than them? You know the right answer. No way. It's because God did more than all you could ask or imagine by opening your eyes to see the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the... Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world to live for you, to die for you, to call you to faith in Him for you, so that you would believe that you are forgiven because He paid the penalty for you. He gave you the Holy Spirit to guide you, to direct you, to strengthen you over the course of your life. He has done all these things for you. And you didn't even know you should have asked for that. He's done immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. You could not have imagined the gospel. I said at the very beginning, remember I said at the very beginning, if you're not a Christian, you should want to be a Christian because this story is too good to be true. Look at the the different religions of the world and you will see a pattern and a theme in every single one of them. And it's this. Here's the path. I'm giving you the teaching. I'm showing you the way. Now go and do it. And that appeals to every human heart because by nature, each one of us wants to justify itself. We want to say, I figured it out, I did it, I accomplished it. And so if it's the Eightfold Path, if it's the Four Noble Truths, if it's the Five Pillars of Islam, if it's uh, the, the, uh, the following the Torah, it does not matter. If we can do it, we can get there. That's what every religion says and it appeals to the human heart. And then along comes this thing called Christianity and it says it has nothing to do with what you can do not a thing. It has everything to do with what he has done for you. All you do is receive it. That's it. That's it. You just hold out your hand and say, please, Lord, may I have some more? And the Bible says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with all kinds of hardships. Maybe you struggle with infertility and you've been praying to God to answer your prayer about that. Maybe you're struggling with singleness. You're single and you don't want to be. Maybe you had a child die and your heart is broken. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you are wrestling with an ongoing addiction. Maybe your finances are a disaster and you're freaked out and you wonder, what is God doing for me in this? And I plead with you, look at what he's done for you already. I promise you, when we get to heaven... And God actually pulls back the veil and allows us to see what salvation really means and what it really costs him to save you and me. How big a deal it actually is. 
everything is going to fade into the background. I thought buying a church building was a big deal. Salvation is so, so, so much bigger. I can imagine these Ephesians, you know. God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is working. They're this small little group. Maybe there's 30 or 40 of them. Could they have ever anticipated the rapid growth of the church over the Roman Empire in the next 300 years and becoming a, a, a legal religion and then eventually creating this thing called Christendom because it's spread throughout Europe and now today over 2 billion people claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Could they have ever imagined anything like that? Could we have ever imagined that we'd be here today on that first Sunday in that living room when there were 40 of us trying to have a little church service uh, uh, spread out in someone's living room? We could never have imagined this. And for this to happen in the midst of a pandemic, two years of hardly being able to be church together. Why? Resurrection power. This is nothing for God. Finally, why does God do it? Well, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what Paul says in verse 21. I'm going to keep this very simple. In the Old Testament, glory basically means weight. A thing that has glory is a thing that is heavy. And what it means by that is, is it's a reality that, that proves its worth and, has, and its value. And so the glory of God means that, that he is the most significant being in existence because he's the one who stands outside of created order. He's the one who made the created order. He's the one who orders the created order. He's the one who sustains the created order. And so he is the most significant, the greatest conceivable being, as some philosophers put it. That's what it means for him to be glorious. And because he is that, it is fitting for all of us, his creatures, to treasure him as the most valuable being in all of existence. Because of sin, we often don't. We treasure other things more important. It could be a spouse, it could be a job, it could be a substance, it could be an activity. It could be any number of things, and we value those things more than we value him. And then, as Augustine says, we find that those things don't quite deliver, so we either try to get more of them, or we try something else, but we're always chasing, always hunting, always searching, whereas Augustine says, our hearts will be forever restless until they find rest in him. And if you want to know what the glory of God really looks like, then you just need to read the Gospels and learn about Jesus. John says in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. What's my point? When Paul says to him be glory in the church, he's saying May Jesus Christ be made much of by his people. My prayer, out of all the things that could ever happen in Grace Valley Church, my prayer is, is that anybody who discovers us, they do say, I don't know what those people are like, but I can tell you this, they're a bunch of Jesus freaks. They are so enamored with this man. 
They call him their God. But I got to hand it to him. I see how people from different cultures and different socioeconomic classes and, and different political backgrounds where, where all these things are dividing around the world. I go to that place and I see these people from all those different places and for some reason they're gathered together and they're worshiping this one being together and they are united in their love and commitment to him and they want to display him. Now I know Grace Valley, I always say we're an aspirational church, friends. We may not look like much now, but we will be one day immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. All right. I want to close with a couple of simple applications. What do we do with all of this? First of all, ask big, friends. When this building came up for sale, I immediately called a bunch of people and I asked them to be on a team that was going to figure out if we could purchase this building. And so they were going to look at our revenue streams and our giving and our tithing and patterns over the last couple of years and then what the building was going to cost and all that and how long, how much it would cost to keep it going and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they got together very quickly and they crunched a bunch of numbers and they sat back and they said, this is impossible. And yet, here we are. God provided, and, and maybe, maybe you hear the capital campaign that we want to launch. We want to raise $500,000 among our congregation for ministry and capital improvements. And you think to yourself, I don't know if I got anything to give to that. I can't, $5,000, $10,000 over three years? That's a pretty huge ask. He can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, friends. So ask big. Ask big and ask bold. Your father is the king of the universe. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring, for his grace and power are such none as can ever ask too much. I don't know what happened to that quote. Large petitions with you bring. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. <laughs> One last thing. Ask expectantly. I asked for dry weather today. And I... It's one of the few times maybe in my life that I was like really expectant. I'm like, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. I know he's going to do it. William Carey, who's the father of the modern missionary movement, some of you may have heard of him, in the late 1700s, he decided that he wanted to bring the gospel to India. Everybody said to him, you are nuts. In Britain, nobody would support him. Nobody would help him. He said, I'm going anyway. So on his own dime... With his own family, he moved to India. He spent 40 years ministering in India. You know how many converts he saw in 40 years? 700. And people thought, what a ridiculous waste of a life. But after he died, what they discovered was that William Carey had, had translated the Bible into four different Indian dialects. And the Bible was spreading like wildfire through that country. And he knew of 700 converts. 
And thousands upon thousands upon thousands more came because of his translation work that nobody knew was happening. Friends, you know what he said? He said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Let's pray. Father, every one of us here who claims Jesus as our Savior has already received more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so as we look to our future, whether it's our personal future, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our businesses, or whether it's in the the future of this church community. Father, may we look forward with confidence, asking boldly, asking big prayers that you would bless us so that we can make much of Jesus in this town. Lord, our desire is to see every resident of Dundas have a meaningful encounter with Jesus Christ. That's a big ask. But we trust you will answer that prayer in ways that we cannot even imagine yet, but we look forward to finding out. Be glorified in us and in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.